We're going to read together just a short passage from the very end of Luke's Gospel, and you'll find it on page 1062. Page 1062. Uh, If you didn't get one, or you want another one, there's plenty at the back. 1062 is the page, and if you're um, reading it in um, some other version or on your phone, um, somebody somebody was at pains to... um, promised me the other week that they weren't tweeting during my sermon. They were avidly reading the Bible passage, uh, which, of course, I believed entirely. Um, Luke, chapter 24, and we're going to start reading at verse 36. It it comes just after um, the um, resurrection appearance of Jesus to the couple on the road to Emmaus, and they've come back to find the disciples who are locked in an upper room um, uh, for for fear of the world outside, and they've been telling the other disciples what's happened to them, and the disciples in turn have been telling this couple who are on the road to Emmaus about, um, about the women who went to the tomb and about what they've seen there, and then uh, this is what happens next. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Uh, One of the perils of being a vicar um, is the twin um, uh, sort of pincer movement of Christmas and Easter and school visits. Um, I absolutely love going to school, and uh, it's been a particular joy over these past a um, few months to get the opportunity um, to start going in a bit more regularly into one of our most local schools just up the road here. Um, but over the course of a term, I might go into five or six or even seven different schools. And when it hits Christmas and when it hits Easter, there is, as you might expect, a sudden spike in emails and phone calls saying, uh, could you come in and do something, dot, dot, dot. And um, generally, why I inquire a little bit further as to what that thing I might do might be, it's along the lines of something about Christmas or something about Easter. Now, I confess that Christmas is dead easy, Easter not so much. Uh, Probably for all the wrong reasons. Christmas is easy because everybody warms to the theme. It's a newborn baby. It's um, wise men or kings with their gifts and their exotic spices and, and their wonderful clothes. It makes for a great nativity. Uh, it's a wonderful story. And actually, it's quite easy to do the story of Christmas um, in a class, in a school, in a local community, and, and just gently sideline the slightly complicated bits about believing who this Jesus might be. 
because everybody loves the story of a newborn child. Easter is far harder. I got asked to go into, um, actually it's happened more than once over the week week before term broke up, Um, I went into two uh, nursery classes. Um, So that's sort of four-year-olds. So could you do something about Easter? Actually, when you think about the story of Easter, it's quite a tough gig, that. Uh, Good Friday is full of stuff that you wouldn't talk about to children in any normal circumstances. Uh, Betrayal, hatred, torture, death. Not great for a nursery class, really. And then you get to Easter Sunday, and you get resurrection of a dead body. And, And... uh, teachers are perfectly reasonably getting quite twitchy about whether children are going to then be asking, well, when's my granny coming back to life? And going, are you really telling us? Are you really telling us that Jesus rose from the dead? And actually today is a day, uh, uh, Easter to me feels weeks ago now, but it is only one week since Easter Sunday. And today, uh, maybe more than any other day apart from that day, we ought to just spend a little bit of time Not rushing past Easter because it's awkward or complicated or confusing, but staying long enough with it to ask the question. Of all the most ridiculous things that any religion could claim, of all the most crazy things that you and I could devote our lives to believing, could it possibly be true that this Jesus really did rise from the dead? Not just in the sense of a nice idea, because the the idea of hope from despair is very attractive. The idea that death isn't the end is written very deep in our souls, and I'll come back to that later on. But not simply to dwell on an idea and a feeling, which is all terribly encouraging, but to say, did it really happen? Does it even begin to make sense? Actually, in the context of a Thanksgiving and thinking about bringing up children, it's a very decent question to ask as well. I'm going to be careful what I say, because I know there are one or two children still here. But we know that there are definite stages that children go through in terms of the stories they believe. Okay? Dot, dot, dot. Particular times of year, Christmas and Easter being amongst them. And that's all part of growing up, and that's great. Where does the resurrection of Jesus fit in that? Is it a story you grow out of, or is it a story you grow into? Is it a story to give us a nice feeling, or is it a story that reshapes the whole of history? And I want to argue that this passage and the passages either side of it um, at least give us a starter for saying the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' new life makes sense much more than it makes non-sense. It makes sense for a start of what's written in the Gospels. Um, I don't know whether you've ever sat down and read one of the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, just like it's a book. It's one of the challenges I always give to people who are, who are sort of beginning to ask about the Christian faith. And I say, well, okay, just sit down one day and read Luke's Gospel. It, it's really not very long. It's about the equivalent of a couple of chapters of a decent novel. Uh, just read it from the beginning to the end. And if you can get hold of a, a version without verse numbers and chapter numbers and headings, it will feel maybe a bit more like a, a novel. And just read it. Just get the feel of it. Immerse yourself in the story. Ask yourself what this Jesus is like. Ask yourself what's going on here. It's a good way of getting past the over-familiarity we've got with some of these stories. Some of us have heard some of the parables of Jesus maybe 40 or 50 or 60 or 100 times 
in our lives. And you might have heard the resurrection story easily that number. But when you start to read what Luke writes about the resurrection of Jesus, I'd argue that it's only that Jesus really did rise from the dead that begins to make sense of the sheer oddness of what he wrote. You see, you wouldn't write it like this if you were making it up. You just wouldn't write it like this. For a start, you would be plain stupid 2,000 years ago, and I'd just like to underline the 2,000 years ago in what I'm about to say. You would be plain stupid 2,000 years ago if you were trying to persuade people of something to say that the first witnesses of it were women. 2,000 years ago, in that culture at that time, I hope you're hearing all the underlinings here, um, 2,000 years ago, it, women weren't even allowed to stand up in a court of law and give testimony because they were counted as being too unreliable. Now, honestly and truly, if you were writing in that culture at that time and you had a fantastical story to put across, who would you choose to be the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus? It wouldn't be Mary and two women friends. It's madness. It doesn't make any sense. And if you were making it up, you wouldn't paint the future leaders of your movement in such a bad way. None of Jesus' friends, it has to be said, especially the men, none of them come out of this story very well. When Mary and uh, Jesus' friends come back to where the disciples are hiding, which doesn't paint them in a great um, light anyway, they basically say, you're mad. And most of them don't even go and have a look for themselves to see if the tomb really is empty. Uh, Peter and uh, one of the other friends do go and have a look, and one of them stoops to have a look in, but the rest of them stay at home. They don't even go and look. If you were writing a story to establish a movement on a fantastical story you made up, you wouldn't write it this way. And it gets worse. Because you then have this couple, Cleopas and possibly his wife, on the way to Emmaus, and Jesus appears alongside them, and they don't recognize him. You probably wouldn't write about, you wouldn't write your description of Jesus this way either, if you were making it up. Jesus is far too mysterious and not nearly majestic and victorious enough. I mean, just sort of do a a sort of mind game with me for a moment. You know, if you were at school and you'd been told to write, I don't know whether you know this, but in sort of, I think it's year four in most primary schools, they do a, do a topic on myths. Myths and legends. I don't know whether your kids have been through that yet, but they will. Um, And um, they have to write their own myth, their own legend. And they've read some Greek myths and they've read some Roman myths. And they have to create their own uh, monster or their own warrior or hero. And it's wonderful some of the stuff they come up with. Well, just imagine that you knew Jesus had died. He was your great hero. He was the one you thought was going to kick out the Romans. He was the one you thought was going to bring in God's kingdom. He was your best friend, and you looked up to him like nothing else. He was your great leader, and he'd been tortured and killed, and you wanted to write an account of you seeing him alive. How would you write it? Well, you'd write it with rippling muscles, a booming voice, possibly a glow, I reckon a glow would go down pretty well. You, you, would, you would write about him doing incredible miracles. You'd write about people sort of uh, falling to the ground in wonder. You'd probably write about him levitating around the place. And you, you'd, 
he'd be sort of burst into rooms by splatting the door flat. And you, it would be big and loud and majestic. And what does Jesus do? He appears alongside a couple walking home and chats with them. He sits with them at a meal table. And they don't recognize him until he breaks the bread and they see the holes in his wrists. What are the holes still doing there? And then, just to make matters worse, they make it sound even more fantastical because he arrives in a locked room. Truly, if you were making it up, you wouldn't write it like this. It's really messy. It's really interesting. When you read any of the Gospels as a piece of literature, the style changes when you hit those last few days. The style changes when you get to the crucifixion. The style changes particularly when you get to the accounts of the resurrection. They're written in very plain, vanilla, unvarnished prose. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's almost like they can't bring themselves to write it down, but they know they need to. The resurrection of Jesus makes sense of what's written here. And actually, it's rather good news, that. Because one of the things it reminds us of is that God isn't into airbrushing out the messy stuff of life. God isn't only into people who have those perfect lives that we all see on other people's Facebook pages. He isn't into the lives that we see just in a glossy magazine. God comes to people with his grace in the darkest times and in the greatest times. He comes to us in our mess and in our awkwardness and of being the wrong person in the wrong place at the right time, as well as the right person in the right place at the right time. It's good news, the resurrection of Jesus. And it makes sense. The second thing that it makes sense of is the radical change in the disciples. So, the first friends of Jesus were for the most part, not entirely, but were for the most part, uneducated, not very well off, certainly not very confident bottom-of-the-heap types. Now, there are a few from different strata of society, but if you just look at those first hundred or so friends of Jesus, followers of Jesus, they were pretty much at the bottom of the heap. They got really confident when they were with Jesus. I mean, that often happens. If you're with somebody who has leadership and charisma and, and energy and looks confident where they are, it gives you confidence, doesn't it? But then what happens when they die? When they're tortured? And killed. Well, actually, it's not just that you go back to how you were before. It's that it totally pulls the rug out from underneath your feet. And that's what we find with Jesus' friends. We find that they are absolutely terrified. Not only have some of them denied him, you know, explicitly and in public, but they've run and hidden themselves in a locked room for fear that what happened to Jesus will happen to them. Honestly and truly, if any group of people in the history of the world were less likely to turn the world upside down, it was this bunch. You can't imagine it. They weren't going to go out of their room, let alone going around telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were a laughing stock, and they knew they were. But something happens. Jesus comes and stands with them, and he says, peace be with you. And I love the fact that they're then terrified. It happens again and again in the the Gospels. There's the wonderful story when Jesus calms the storm. He's asleep in the the boat. They're out on the Sea of Galilee that most of them being fishermen would have known like the back of their hand. They are absolutely 
um, frightened out of their wits by this storm. And they knew that they needed to be frightened. They were fishermen. They knew the, the, the lake really well. And then the, the gospel writer says, Jesus woke up. They go, what's going on? Save us. And he basically tells the wind and the waves to be quiet, and it's still. And then they don't throw a party. They're not overjoyed. They don't hug him and fall at his feet. It says, then they were terrified. It happens again and again. When they realize who this Jesus is, when Jesus reveals himself, they're really scared. But something changes. He says, peace be with you, and they're terrified. He shows them his hands and his feet. He eats a piece of fish, and it turns out they were just terrified that he was a ghost, which makes logical sense. You see, they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting it any more than you and I expect it. This was as ridiculous to them as it is to us. Please don't swallow the lie that somehow this was a gullible bunch of fishermen from 2,000 years ago who believed that every day people rose from the dead. They didn't believe it any more than you and I would. That's why they were so terrified. He was a ghost. But something happened to change them. And it changed them so radically that within days, they were out on the streets of the very city in which their friend and saviour died, in the very city in which he'd been tried, in the very city in which he'd been tortured, and in the very city um, in which their names were not just mud, but were on a list of people to arrest. And they stood up and preached to a great crowd. And 3,000 people that first day became followers of Jesus. And without an army, without a book publishing empire, without the internet, without many who are educated with very little money, without particular organization or a church growth strategy, they turned that part of the world and then gradually the whole world upside down to a point where today a third of the population of this planet identify themselves as being followers of Jesus. What on earth happened? To me, the only thing that begins to make sense is that Jesus really rose from the dead. It transformed who they were. And that's good news as well. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news because it draws in our messy lives. But the resurrection of of Jesus is good news because he transforms our messy lives. He begins to help us to become the men and the women, the boys and the girls that God made us to be. He doesn't make us perfect like that. He doesn't transform us into somehow superhuman entities. It's simply that he begins that long process that will take us into the life of the world to come of becoming the people he always intended us to be. He gives us courage to speak up for what we know is true. He gives us courage to be the people he's made us to be. He gives us the courage to allow him to live in us. But it's also true that the reality um, of Jesus' resurrection um, makes sense of something that is very deep in us. And that's that the the resurrection of Jesus makes sense of our deep-seated desire, hope for, and conviction about death itself. You see, the resurrection of Jesus makes sense of why it is that you and I find it impossibly difficult to believe that death really is the end. You see, if my first two things make sense of what we read here, of the mess of the disciples' lives and of the transformation of their lives, the resurrection of Jesus also makes sense of my life and of what I feel about it, what I think about it. 
It doesn't actually matter how much I am absolutely dead certain there's no God. It is incredibly hard to believe that the end is really the end and that that's okay. Even if I really believe it's the end, I fight against it with all my being. Uh, There's an amazing, amazing book, which if you've got the stamina for it, I recommend, called Before I Say Goodbye. Um, I think her name is Ruth Picardy. She was a a journalist um, and died very young. And um, she wrote her diaries and uh, wrote about her experience of of the last um, couple of years of her life. And it's a, a, I I do give you a warning, it's a a traumatic um, as well as life-affirming read. But her husband writes the afterword. And he, he says words along these lines. I haven't got the quote with me, but I, um, he says along these lines. He basically says, look, I, I don't believe in God. He's very upfront about that. I don't believe that there is. Um, and he says, Ruth didn't either. But he also then goes on to say, but I find it impossibly difficult to believe that her life has just evaporated into the entropy of space. Of course we find it impossible to believe. It's not how we're wired. It's not what goes on in here. It's part of the evidence, actually, for believing this world does have meaning and purpose, that there is more to life than meets the eye. And the resurrection of Jesus here is remarkable because it doesn't just talk about somebody somehow being reanimated, coming back for another go. Jesus doesn't just sort of somehow, you know, open his eyes, breathe again, and have another go at living. The gospel writers seem to say that Jesus is, is in a new body, a real physical one that you could see and touch and feel that needed to eat, that enjoyed fish, but also one that could appear in a locked room, that, that could go from, from Emmaus to Jerusalem in, in not very much time, that, that, that seemed to be able to, to be with them and then with them over there, somehow real but different. In other words, not just another go at the same life all over again, but experiencing the life beyond death that is a promise for you and me. See, the resurrection of Jesus makes sense of and gives hope to that longing we have in all of us to believe that there is more to life than simply life. That there is more to who I am than simply these few years I get on this planet. It's not the way any of us actually tick. It's not really what any of us find comfortable to believe that that's the end. And the resurrection of Jesus says to us, you're absolutely right. There is a life of the world to come. Death is not the end. And just as Jesus has gone ahead of us into it, he promises that we get to follow him there. And that's good news. That's good news because it means that our lives aren't simply about what we can achieve in these few years. They're not simply about the unfairness of our day-to-day lives. They're not simply about the mistakes we make. They're not simply about the messes we make that we can't unpick and can't undo. They're not simply about the dead ends we end up in. They're not simply about the bits of life we wish we could rewind because this life is not all it is, all there is. The resurrection of Jesus is good news because there is life to come. As we've prayed for Zach and as we've prayed for Oliver, we've prayed that they will know in their lives that Jesus, the risen Jesus, scoops up their very real and at times messy lives and brings new life to them. We've prayed 
that Jesus will, by his spirit, transform them as they grow up because of his new life. But we're also praying that as they find themselves loved in Jesus and as they learn to love him back with the words they speak, the things they do, the people they're becoming, they will know that this life is not all there is to life. But there is a life of the world to come that we're sure of, not because we're holding our breath and whistling in the dark, but because Jesus' new life makes sense of what we know is true in here. May you know the reality of Jesus' resurrection life, both now and every day. Amen.